Hi, this is Paul, and you're listening to a special in-between episode of Arconnect Sessions. In this show, we're sharing some recordings by Ken and Donna from Exhibit Columbus that they recorded while visiting a selection of installations along with some local architectural masterpieces. Exhibit Columbus describes itself as an annual exploration of architecture, art, design, and community created to celebrate Columbus's extraordinary design heritage. This inaugural exhibition opened on August 26th and will continue until November 26th. We've covered Exhibit Columbus on Arconnect, including in episodes 83 and 84 of Arconnect Sessions. Check the show notes for this episode on Arconnect for links and photos. If you plan on visiting Exhibit Columbus, make sure to grab a map and program from the Columbus Visitor Center and check out the mobile app Here Here that uses geolocation to play commentary for each installation throughout the city. Ken and Donna start their tour at the University Installations, an axis of five architecture school projects along a public pedestrian walkway. Each school took the installation on as a student project, giving them the opportunity to learn about full-scale fabrication in the public sphere. First up, Ball State Installation 49262. So I think that was part of the intent here, was that the perforations and the color changes start to create a moiré effect where you can't really tell where one color starts and another ends or what, what color things really are because they reflect off each yeah. other. The yellow so is hitting the, the yellow, blue yeah, and turning yeah. the green. Turning it green. And because the perforations change, you get this density of orange at one spot and then it really fades and disappears into blue. The gradient change across this piece is really gorgeous. And the beautiful. way the, the light dapples on the ground. But it reminds me, it, it <laughs> reminds me, Josh Kagashal, who's the, the professor who taught the class that did this project, used to have this shirt that's my favorite shirt ever. And it was a white men's dress shirt, not a button down collar, though. It had just a regular collar, but the underside of the collar and the lining of the cuffs was fluorescent orange. <laughs> so you would get this very subtle fluorescent orange glow around the collar and the hands and I loved that shirt so much but so you see this bright orange and the this is Josh's love of color this is Josh's love of color come through in this look at that you, see I'm looking through right here yeah. you can't tell what sky and what's no, what's no. object because yeah. the blue is so similar to the blue yeah. of the sky yeah totally dematerializes everything and it's gorgeous what do they say about it? Columbus, Indiana is a tower city marked by vertical elements that encourage a viewer to direct their gaze upward. 49262 respects and references this verticality without replicating the same proportions. The object meets the earth with sparse perforations that grow in size and density as the height increases. The object blurs and then fades into the sky, creating a gradient between material and space. Nice. It's a very dematerialized object in a oh, lot of ways, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. What I particularly like are the colors, the primary colors, feel very playful. Mm -hmm. The opening is kind of directed towards the <laughs> playground equipment. Yeah, yeah. So it very much, you know, for me, when I saw the two connected to one another, yep. I was really kind of thinking about, oh, this is crazy, a nice little complimentary, thoughtful experimentation yep. riffing on playground that playground across the way unfortunately the playground equipment is quite faded and it looks yeah. in comparison now yeah, no. it, it needs to be brightened up yeah, <laughs> <laughs> all right i'm stepping outside so how does it feel like outside oh wait <laughs> so it is i was just thinking i can i can touch the surface of this object and it feels it feels pleasant to the touch it's very finished the surface is i think 
I don't think it's powder coated. I think it's just frayed, but it feels good. It feels smooth. The curves are lovely and it's got that, that density from where I'm standing right now. It's beautiful. Next up is the University of Cincinnati's project, Alchemy. Cincinnati School of Architecture project called Alchemy, and the instructor is Terry Bowling, and there was a bunch of students that worked on this, and this is all about handcraft, basically, and using cast-off materials and then imprinting them in a way that makes them more custom, and it's all handcrafted and very totemic and I think very beautiful, but I'll be interested to hear what you think of it, Ken. Ooh. Ooh, it's lovely. <laughs> stand on oh, that dot. Stand on that dot. And speak. What? Wow, that's, oh, that's <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> No, that's wonderful. So it's uh, Rookwood pottery, and I'm wondering how this sounds, because right now what I'm hearing, because I'm standing in the center of this domed space, is my own voice reflecting back at me in a very almost vocal jam kind of way. But it's Rookwood pottery that has been cast off, so it's Rookwood tiles that were not considered good enough. They didn't make the cut, but they're being used here as very beautiful handcrafted sheathing shingles almost. Oh, like, so everything is, everything is everything cast, cast off. off? Everything is, yeah, waste. It's all waste. Um, and then these are like, yeah, these are, um, I think, uh, railroad ties that have been cut down and then imprinted with Saarinen in the First Christian Church uses these, and he in other projects too, maybe in your church, Ken, he uses these sort of runes or shapes that are cut into the limestone. They don't really have any meaning. They're not really language. They're just... Um, no, not in, yeah, no, not like this Saarinen like church, because that's what we saw on the yeah. colonnade with yeah. on the columns. On yeah. the columns. No, no, actually his is much more refined and it's an ilial serenin church right not arrow is it first serenin or second serenin first serenin designed serenin. the church yeah. okay. and then the son of saw through construction and designed the education way okay so these, I can't remember exactly how it worked, but these students at Cincy somehow crowdsourced these images that are cut into the wood. Okay. And then the little ties, and Janice spoke about this in our original podcast, the little ties that hold the pieces of wood together yeah. are actually cutouts, punch-outs from copper pipe manufacturing or something that they repurposed into these um, connector pieces. Oh, those. Okay. So that's like a cut-off, wasted piece of copper that okay. they, yeah. Well, it's interesting because it, it feels connected to a native or a first people's tradition. Definitely. It has that, and it, but it has a very, obviously a modern aesthetic with mm -hmm. the Rookwood tile. And it's not like the UK, which I don't want to compare the indelible patterns to. So it's it functions more as a kind of a, an object unto itself. Definitely. Very that, that literally does, inward focused. Yeah, but the one thing that's great about it is that it, it takes into account and the sound is part of the experience, which yeah, is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I think you would space. stand outside and go, oh, that's nice, but you really have to get. Yeah. Architecture is, is not always a visual exactly. thing. Exactly. It really has manifold unveilings, and the sound yeah. piece is really kind of is quite lovely. Onto the University of Michigan's Cloud Bank. The beginning of this recording is from the Hear Hear app. I've been working on the uh, pig benches. Uh, it's been very enjoyable and interesting to try and make something functional and still sculptural. And as we've learned to like simplify and easy construction for packing, it's been great to build something at a one-to-one -one scale rather than um, drawing at, at something that's not physically like feasible. So it's been great to um, have such a tactile experience. 
Uh, one of the things that was really striking to me as we were working it is uh, our attempts to uh, localize it into the context and make it site-specific. We really looked to uh, local inspiration. What was Columbus already doing with some of its uh, existing modernist masterpieces? And a lot of that tied back to um, regulating lines, and so we chose to incorporate that into the project. So as you move through it, you'll notice there's certain view corridors that point to icons uh, around Columbus. Installations. I had a conversation with Jim Roberts about kids and how they're going to experience it. What do you think, Jim? I, I think our kids are going to they're going to enjoy, love the experience, and had a chance already to be in the building with our kids interacting with these university students who have designed these um, projects, and uh, it's just been a joy to see how everything is developed and been organized. I agree. I hope everybody gets, gets to come out and see it. I hope they do. This is the start of, of something big, and as we were talking earlier, seeing all this come together, we're going to hate when it leaves, so maybe we need to find a way to make these permanent parts of uh, the Columbus and, and or at least BCSC, because we love having the, the projects on our property. Where there's a will, there's a way. There, there, that's true. All right, let's get it done. Very good. So this piece is called Cloud Bank, and it's by University of Michigan Taubman College of Architecture, and Mick Kennedy was the instructor, and it is about specifically Midwestern things like the way the clouds linger low in the sky as opposed to out west, where I always think of clouds as being high. And they have very narrative references to things like fish and pigs and corn stalks, and it was, as I recall, though, sort of digitally fabricated and welded by robots. <laughs> so it's kind of a grainy, earthy, you know, Midwestern down-home installation, but it also was put together using the technology of rhino or whatever to, to come up with the forms. It seems connected to the trees as well, where we're sited. Right. It's so it's, in here so the, the clouds are rooted. It's a very whimsical, very kind of whimsical. very yeah. folly-ish. Yeah. It's not really responding to any particular architectural no. context. Not at all. But it's, um, it's certainly vegan. <laughs> Because it's metal. It's and, metal, uh, and the pigs are not butchered. The pigs are not butchered, and the fish are swimming happily in the clouds. In the clouds, so, so it's... <laughs> I'm going to go sit on a pig. <laughs> Donna's going to go sit on a pig. Oh, head clearance. So, do you know anything about the muted colors, of the kind of pastel-y colors of the, of the structure and the piece? Or, do they talk about that at all? Pig is nodding his head, no. Pig does not know <laughs> why it's not really a vibrant pink. It's more of a pale pink. I mean, I have to say, I don't, I don't know. My recollection of this piece when I saw it on opening weekend was that the colors were brighter. So I don't know if they've just faded. It um, seems like it, it has. Because they are very muted looking right now. Yeah. Certainly well worn. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of rust showing up in the joints. But again, these are temporary installations. I know. Donna keeps saying they're temporary. I'm trying to, trying to give them a little benefit of Architecture is never temporary. It's permanent. No, it's always temporary. Even a 500-year-old building is only there for a certain amount of time. But it, the memory of it resonates forever. Marty Summers, the professor in charge of the University of Kentucky's installation, tells us about their project. Make sure to check out Marty's Instagram photos that we'll share in the show notes. This is, this is our little kid's treehouse. This doesn't frame anything other than maybe Ball State, mm -hmm. uh, which that's kind of nice. Yeah, I'll have to give Josh tiger. a photo. Yeah, yeah we'll uh, give Josh that one. But the rest of it is really an ode to the modernism of Columbus, which is kind of regulating lines. And so if you look at the geometry of the project, this line, unfortunately, you can't see it. There's a window directly behind us mm -hmm. that this is the edge of the window. Mm -hmm. The other 
condition of that window is that it projects through here and becomes this angle. <laughs> this is going to be a cantilever that comes over. And so kids inside the school will be able to look out that window mm -hmm. and you'll have Saren and perfectly framed through our piece. Oh, nice. So it becomes a conversation nice. of yeah. old and new, also a conversation with kids about what architecture does nice. and how it can work in a site. The other part that hopefully is obvious to people is that it's totally designed around the trees and very conscious of the, the scale yeah. of the site. Oh, That's the swarm simple. itself yeah. gets cut along that diagonal as well. So it'll be an open path there. But once you're underneath it, it's a series of waves that cut and glitches that if you walk around it, you'll see these patterns start to emerge and disappear, kind of like clouds inside of it. Okay. And then once you're on the bench over here, there's another cross cut through the swarm that frames Burkert's tower over here. Burkert's, it is Burkert's, I can remember. And so as you're moving around, ideally you're seeing patterns and other things kind of emerge, but you're also being sucked into the idea that this thing is, while it's a temporary thing, it's very directly linked yeah. to the site and to the history of Columbus while then pushing it. So yeah. the opposite, so the, the prompt for us was, of course, how does uh, manufacturing and technology affect the way exactly. we design? So the swarm, the pattern, the geometry itself, all these things are done through. But the swarm itself is grasshopper driven. All of the way the parts were made are a series of grasshopper scripts, one to produce the parts one to then unpack it to get it into the sheets. Mm -hmm. So each one of these things has gone through like 10 steps mm -hmm. of our own design and intuition mm -hmm. then combined with the technology to produce it. Mm -hmm. So that this it's really kind of a fusing of hyper-rationalization and intuition and mm -hmm. other things that yeah. make architecture architecture. Right. So in the end, there are regulating lines that are more contemporary regulating lines that are driving some of the geometry mm -hmm. that you can't see mm -hmm. and you have no idea where they're coming from, mm -hmm. but they're there. Right. They're in the virtual space of the model that's mm -hmm. producing. Mm -hmm. So it's, that, it's a bit of a dialogue between the literal relationship and this mm -hmm. other kind of right. unknown. Intuitive or, yeah. And my hope is that every time somebody comes back, they'll see something slightly different yeah. and it'll stay alive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that you won't, you know, you won't see it and go, okay, I got it. Yeah. Uh, that's the worst thing for me in architecture. See, and that's where we're working <laughs> yeah. in the Midwest now, because you were in LA for a long time. One of the benefits of the Midwest to me is we have seasons. And so yeah. you come, you get to work with that and yeah. how there's different I thought of it that way. Like sun that. angles, the that snow you. falls on it. Please do. I, 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 I know it intuitively, but I've never yeah. stated it No, that it's way, about the right. slow. I mean, because growing up in the West where it's always warm and sunny. Yeah. And then here, yeah, it's, it's perfect light winter's different, and it's, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Spring starts, and things yeah. are, like, start to change and thrive, and, yeah, it's totally about the subtle changes through the seasons. So, yeah, these little little things you notice differently depending yeah. on the... And the hope is, oh. like, a lot of people don't even notice the pattern that on this yeah. until the light hits it. You won't even notice it on the deck yeah. until late in the afternoon, and yeah. all of a sudden it just goes... And again, as the sun gets lower, those yeah. shadows are going to get more pronounced at certain yeah. moments yeah nice i love this i love the and it's like it's, shallow cut pattern yeah it's yeah. the uh so there's the razzle dazzle kind of glitch which is a projected pattern that we've produced mm -hmm. but then there's the pattern of the actual material which is the kind of machining right. stamping right which is beautiful in its own right, right. and so it's another set of contrasts yeah. it's the kind as of well hyper precise digital with the rawest of raw material put into yeah. combination yeah and when we realized this was a really late decision to go with this material, mm -hmm. uh, I was talking to the guy at Nomi who actually has the CNC who's allowed us mm -hmm. to use his warehouse mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. who's yeah. been just totally amazing. Wonderful. Matt Brooks. He said, you should use this material because then you don't have to finish it because right. this is good for eight months 
exposed. Mm. Okay. And when I saw it online, I was like, oh God, yeah. this is not what I'd planned on this thing looking like. So I immediately took a, copied off their website, a really mm -hmm. bad image of it mm -hmm. and just mapped it onto all the parts mm -hmm. and fell in love immediately. Okay, good. Yeah. Because once I did it, you start to see all these little black marks. Uh huh. And so as you move around it, yeah. you get all yeah. these other patterns that are now totally out of our control, yeah. Yeah. but are beautiful in their own right. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like a... So what For is me, this it's, material? It's called Advantex. This is a tongue and groove flooring. It's basically like uh, shear panels. Is it underlayment for flooring? Yes. Okay. They do it as underlayment and as uh, sheathing on the exterior. Okay. The last stop before lunch is a visit to Knowlton School's project, Inscribed. This one's interesting. From the outside, I thought it was all, I thought the lines were all like... Cable or Cable something? or... Yeah. It's not. It's It's actually 3D printed material, I think. Yeah, it looks like it. 3D printed or, or extruded, I guess. You know what? It could be extruded and then fabricated, although it could be... But yeah, they look like they're um, cables. They look like string. Yeah. Grew out of an exploration of scripted drawing that references the procedural work from artists such as Solowit, Bridget Riley, and Casey Rees. The resulting line work was then developed into a series of 3D printed panels that informed the structural framework. My favorite thing about this project is the each joint, these metal joining plates, mm -hmm. which I'll take a picture of. Yeah. Each one is custom, and this is the nature of um, rapid prototyping or, or computer-controlled technology, is that you can make a custom cut and bent joining plate exceptionally easily compared to how you used to have to make that shit by hand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I love the joining plates on this thing. And yeah. it's a nice place to sit down. I mean, I feel it's nice sitting here in just a little enclosed pavilion. It's difficult. I think the materials don't wear well to they don't. touch. Yeah, you're seeing some a little vandalism because yeah, things. Well, are... I, think, I don't even think it's that nefarious. I think it's just the idea that that <laughs> you want to be able to touch it, and yeah. so you start to touch it because your mind can't connect with what the material is. So you're expecting one thing when you come up to it, and another when you get to it, right. and then. You're thinking it's another material when you touch it, right? And you're not quite sure what the material is. Yeah. And then you push on it. Yep. <laughs> which is what one is want to do. Yeah. And then it breaks. Yep. And then you realize the the limitations of the material. I wish it was a little bit more connected to the again to the site. You know, I think all of the projects, what all of the projects probably suffer from, is that because they're all developed internally in the schools, mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. not a lot of sharing of what the other one is doing. And I think there's opportunities that are missed. Mm -hmm. Like I think specifically the UK project, it's by accident that some of the reviews kind mm -hmm. of pick up all states project. Right. Right. But it wasn't intentional. Right. Um, it would be interesting to see what if. There could be some kind of like, what are you doing? Yeah. Oh, let me see if I can, if, if my project is going to talk about architecture, mm -hmm. that I could riff on yours and make part mm -hmm. of yours, some of yours part of mine in some way. That's an interesting notion. And maybe one they could put in for the next, you know, the next year's exhibit. Yeah, no, but, that's, um, that's always, that's me. This year, they, and <laughs> Marty and Josh talked about it on the first, the other podcast that um, one of them would post something to Instagram and then the other one would respond a couple minutes later with, oh, well, here's what we're doing or, you know, so there was that, but it was not a part of the program from the outset. Yeah, that, okay, you're going to do something and you are tasked with responding to it in some way so that as you go down this alley of university projects, you yeah. get you get a response that folds from one to the next. Yeah, and, and I think my brief would be specifically stated that I would my response is going to be based on what you're doing. And right. It's a very, right. Right. it's a cagey, mm -hmm. and you have to trust the person mm -hmm. that they're 
going to be yeah. able to fall and pull it off. Yep. But yep. that would be, it's, a, it's an interesting, it's a, again, it's a studio project for somebody else. Not, <laughs> not intentionally saying that any of these needed to do that. No, they <laughs> don't need to do it. Yeah. it's definitely a take that I might have. This is when your professor, <laughs> when you're in critique and one of the reviewers said, okay, so what if you had done it this way? And yeah, then the well, whole we, review becomes about this about other your, thing that's not line, what yeah. you're looking at. Yeah. And it drives you crazy. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, oh, I do. It's pretty. It's, I do. It's, it's pretty. Nice. I do like the lines against the sky. I love the color. I think it's a great learning experience. No, absolutely. That's the thing. For a student to think that they're going to put something in the world oh, yeah. and people aren't going to beat the hell out of it, that yeah. you, you have to learn that lesson. Yeah. The second half of the day is spent visiting the Miller Prize installations, the superstars of Exhibit Columbus. Ten firms competed for five spots, with each winning firm awarded $70,000 to realize their projects. Each team was expected to work with local fabricators to bolster collaboration between design and industry. First up is IKD's design for the conversation plinth. The beginning of the recording captures the app narration, describing the 3D LiDAR scanning of the plaza. Simmons with IRO Simmons in Lexington, Kentucky, and we're here at the conversation plant, and we were asked to scan the plaza that you're standing in, and what we did is brought our terrestrial laser scanner, set it up, and we basically surveyed the entire plaza, the front of the church, and the front of the library, and we're able to provide that data to Yugon uh, Kim and their group trying to fabricate this beautiful piece that's out here. And what we were able to show them through our data was the actual topography of the site. It looks very flat, but there are minor differences as it goes across the site. And they were able to install and make the changes, the small, minute changes to their pieces to fabricate and to allow the plinth to be perfectly level and perfectly safe for everybody to gather around, visit, and have fun and I'm standing atop the conversation plant looking down onto the... We're going to have a conversation in a conversation plant now. So we're standing on top of the conversation plant. IKD. IKD. What do you think? I love this piece and I respect this piece very much. I was told during the opening by Yugon Kim of IKD that he listened to our podcast. Yay! Really? <laughs> About these pieces and... Um, that we sort of said, yeah, it's a really ambitious piece. I don't know if he'll be able to get it done. And he took that as a challenge and he rose to the challenge <laughs> and he met it. So it's a big piece in part because they got funding from, um, I think it's the United States Forest Service or something grant because they're experimenting with cross laminated timber fabrication. And so it, seriously, this is not just a, you know, a little installation for a temporary installation. It's a research project. It really is. And, um, I love how ambitious it is, and I see it as a, as a great experiment. And just the simple fact of coming up these stairs to this circular space where you can have a conversation and look out at a view of this big, beautiful IMPE plaza that you never get to see otherwise, that's a treat. That's a treat for the community to get to have this new perspective. Yeah, I think, you know, I've taken different positions on this. I think when we first came here, I was a little unsure about it. And, you know, I think uh, the structure I'm really not too enamored with. I think it's a little too organized structurally. I, I would have liked to see a little more randomness for some reason. I think especially the, the colonnading of the structure. Yeah. I, I don't have so much a criticism of the siting of the, of the piece. I think 
the way you approach it does seem a little awkward because it doesn't seem that when you're coming from Wikiyami or the visitor center that uh, is a very inviting piece at the, the structural side on the structural side. But once you get into the piece, it's very uh, lovely. And I do like there's a dialogue occurring between the, the sculpture and the plinth yeah. itself. I guess the criticism for me is. I think the ramping doesn't go far enough. I, mm -hmm. I almost wish it would engage, not literally engage, but somehow have an engagement with the street in some yeah. way or yeah. the sidewalk. Yeah, to go a little further. A either. little further, yeah. because you don't really see the ramp, that walkway, until you get almost around the piece. Right. So you never really right. see it, but almost wish it was taken a little further. And mm -hmm. The same thing with the other kind of stepping piece that steps to the seating area mm -hmm. in, around the sculpture. I think that is um, something that, again, could have probably been you know, brought down. Because right now, the, the one major criticism I think is, is probably apt to say at this point is that it's not accessible for anyone in a wheelchair. It's not. It presents itself as though it would. Right. And it does. But there's a funny little three-inch step at the beginning of the ramp that's yeah. just, it, it needs to be addressed. It, but it should be... be resolved, and it seems like it easily can be resolved, and, and I would encourage that before this is over. I think the, the city, could... the city or exhibit columns or someone needs to put that ramp there. Because when we were here earlier today, we saw a gentleman who uses an electronic uh, wheelchair and um, his in. daughter was running up the ramp and he was, you know, sitting there looking. Yeah. So that's our task. I'll say it again. As architects, we have to make sure everyone can access our buildings. Yeah. So that's just a little piece that needs to be fixed on the conversation plinth. But overall, I love it. I it's think rich. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's uh, warm. It feels almost like an accessible treehouse in a way. It totally, totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's a treehouse. And who was it we were was it just talking with Enrique last night? Who were we talking to that said that uh, in their presentation to the jury, Yugon Kim nailed the presentation. It was one of the most well-crafted presentations I've ever seen for a project engaging with the history of the place, the context of the site that Marty Summers from UK was talking, saying that. And it's absolutely true. It was a masterful presentation of a fully formed idea. And um, it's amazing to me to see it fully formed as in actually built here on the site yeah, now, just it, as they said it was going to be. And it's not, I mean, it doesn't look too much different from the model. So no, I mean, not at can, all. I can take solace in the fact that the, the presentation of the model, the presentation doesn't veer too far from the actual execution. Yeah, yeah. So, they knew what the hell they were doing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Very well done. Next up is Wikiyami by Studio Indigenous. Architect Chris Cornelius describes the project via the Hear Hear app, followed by some friendly debate between your hosts. To reflect the indigenous dwellings of the people that originally inhabited this area, the Miami, and their uh, original dwelling was a wigwam, which was usually made out of materials that they could find near them, uh, trees that were bent over, uh, the cladding was shingled in some way, either tree bark or reed mats. And so what we've done here is to uh, make a steel structure out of steel rebar, uh, steel cladding, and it's shingled uh, to reflect that, that similar uh, way of building. And so I hope you enjoy the space. Uh, there doesn't have a specific intended use, and people should be able to enjoy it however they like. You know, we were here earlier today, yes. and we commented on this, and we fucked up the recording. I fucked up the recording. <laughs> we did. And uh, I thought coming back, I would have maybe a different feeling about it, but I still come back to the statement. There's a blasé attitude towards the materiality of the structure that wasn't there when these early wigwams were built. And, and I, I just feel that 
the structure, the form is not enough, that it needs to be more intentional in terms of material selection. I'll say I feel it could be more connected to Cummins or the local community. I mean, we're looking at the structure now and I can see across the way there's a, a wonderfully tiled facade on the those bay windows that you look like it uses slate mm -hmm. as a material. Mm -hmm. Not saying it needs to be slate. I mean, it would think certainly be more expensive to do, but I'm saying we're nestled in trees, not saying it has to be bark, but just the kind of very non-intentional use of the materials. I think you used the word casual. Last casual, time casual. Kind of a casual attitude. Yeah, like it could have been anything. Why does it have to be expanded metal mesh? Is that the simplest thing to use as a way of kind of conveying, uh, very conveying the form? I mean, could you use something else? Is there something? My, my, my recollection when Chris presented this was that he either said copper or he said something like it could be a copper type perforated material. I mean, I think his intention all along was that it be perforated, that there be light filtering through, because it's, again, the filter, the same sort of attitude towards light filtering through the trees as, as this has. You know, I think part, one of the tasks of Exhibit Columbus was to not only be about making, about placemaking and making spaces for people to think about, but also to engage with the manufacturing history of this region. And so using, doing metalwork or using something like, like a, a Advanced manufacturing for something like cutting of these panels, I think, is totally appropriate to that intent. And I think that using rebar is kind of ha is analogous to the idea of using trees. I love the piece because I love the notion of heart of thinking about history. And maybe this ties us into the bi architecture biennial in Chicago in some way. I loved immediately when Chris presented this project. I was taken by the idea of talking about the people who lived here before we became the United States of America discovered by Christopher Columbus after whom this city is named, right? That there was an indigenous population here and that if we're talking about where Columbus came from and where it goes to, we shouldn't just start with the white people. We need to start way back. Yeah, but this town was also named Tiptonia. Yes. So it wasn't really initially Columbus. No. Um, it was branded Columbus. For what reason, I don't know. I think, well, for me, some of the problems with it is that the model is a better expression of the idea oh, than absolutely. the built form. The model is so There compelling. was two entries, yeah. uh, and now there's only one entry. And it, it would seem that I, I would I would gather that it's a little bit more complicated given the, the, steel, substru <laughs> the steel structure to kind of do two. So maybe that was a limitation found during the fabrication process. But the one thing that's unforgivable for me is the materiality, the kind of blasé attitude towards the materiality, and without a doubt, the, what did you call it again? The top? The regalia. The regalia is fatally flawed. The regalia is not nearly as good as it should be. The regalia on the model was, was more interesting, and the way that Chris described it in the presentation as the regalia is not quite something that I've finished thinking about yet and something through the process will inform more of what that regalia should be. Going back to the notion of what regalia is, which is a, a signifier of a certain status or a certain idea you're trying to get across and using regalia as a way to, a decorative way to present that status. Right. And the one thing about it is that your eye, the form draws your eye up words through the sky, through the canopy of trees, and it is unfinished. It's unrewarding it's when you get to the top. It's unrewarding, yeah. it's unfinished. Yeah. I mean, I first thing I was expecting was something along Hayduckian. Hayduckian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think the model kind of starts to express yes. some of that, yeah. that connection, that reinforcing mm -hmm. connection back to uh, native peoples. 
that would have, you know, grounded it. But yeah, I'm a little disappointed because I, I love this one and I want to love it more. Right. And I think it's a, it's a decent execution. I just wanted it to be a little bit. I expect more when I see something so well conceived. I expect more in the finishing. The other really the notable aspect of the model that I noticed today as we just walked by it in the storefront on the street is um, the shingled skin was more three-dimensional yeah. so the fold the plates were folded can, there was yeah. a there was a it wasn't just a, a sleek skinning it was a dimensional layering of perforated material of some sort that just gave it more less of a smoothness and I think that the smoothness right now is not yeah doing it any favors I still feel like it looks kind of like a deer haunch I look at it and I think it looks like a haunch that word just comes to mind like a haunch and maybe now especially because the rusting is starting to set in I think as it rusts more and as at the same time the leaves around it turn orange it's going to be pretty spectacular yeah right now with it in with shadow of the tree canopy it's hard to discern the actual shapes of the of the tiling yeah. So it, yeah. it kind of yeah. renders it in a, in a uniform surface. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, if it had been, and to me, from a construction standpoint, it seems rather easy to kind of fabricate into some of the rebar, some standoffs to kind of give you that dimensionality so that the panels can actually rest on something that pulls it away. Well, it, that, that would have been one approach, or I think it could, and we're getting deep into the tectonics now, but yeah. the, the other thing would be to bend the panels, yeah, and bend I don't think the simple. panels are bent, no. and I don't know that it is simple to bend expanded metal mesh. That's the, that's the problem. I mean, I know there's brake machines that will bend a plate, but I don't know if you can do the same with the expanded I think metal you, mesh. I think you can. I, I, yeah, I mean, we are getting down we're, into yeah. the weeds of this, but I think where... The consideration at the edges of the, where this thing, where, mm-hmm. where the panels come down towards the ground, I think you're seeing where certain failings come in. And mm-hmm. this is what you do when you're creating this kind of architecture. You're experimenting. And, exactly. And you find out where, where yeah. the edges of the limitations yep. of your yep. ideas are. And they have fabric netting to keep people out from climbing under and kids would absolutely climb in there and they would get cut to they shreds. They slice themselves open, yep. Yeah. <laughs> they would cut, be cut so to shreds. It's so an ex- it's an experiment. It's, I and think the using the rubber on the interior is another problematic thing. I mean, again, if you want to, you could have easily thatched that with some kind of natural material that would have been, you know. Well, so that, yeah, I, I actually love it because it's black. And it puts me in the mind of burning things and charcoal and burnt, you know, the, the embers of the fire dying down. But and it is recycled uh, tire material is what it is. Recycled Which is a rubber. Horrible material to be using well, in, it's, in construction. It's, it feels very not natural, exactly, in a way that I'm not sure if I. And it's, it's the toxic. blackness. You're, people are sitting down in that toxic pool yeah, of I guess shit. That, that may be true. <laughs> but I mean, isn't that what they make playground surfaces out of? Not anymore. Not doing okay. that anymore. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah, specifically for that reason. For that reason. Yeah. Well. They're using other, they're finding other uses in the other materials. Now. Well, the nice thing is just a moment ago, as Ken and I sat down, there was a young girl in there playing a guitar, a guitar, I think. Yeah. And then she picked up her skateboard and zipped off. But yeah. it was lovely her sitting in there <laughs> playing the music in the space and yeah. hearing it filter out. That was actually a very beautiful moment. So I, I do love it and I do think it has some shortcomings, but I love it nonetheless. Yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> I think that's why I said that, you know, I think my expectations are so high that you want it to reach and kind of aspire. So, yeah, nonetheless, very good and very much not a dirty earth mound. Not a a mound of mud. Not a mound of mud. Plan B's installation among the Cummins corporate office building pergola is the next stop on the tour. 
This is clearly not our tour guide's favorite project, and they don't hold back with their criticism. The recording starts with audio from the app, then follows with Ken's beatdown. Uh, all structures are brought over, set into place to the forklift, where we placed the dirt on top of the mounds and soldered them on site. Uh, myself and all the guys that work for Toby Perry Company are local native uh, Columbus folks and have really enjoyed this project. The trees that you see are maple and sweet gum. They've been sourced by a local nursery, uh, Brown Hill Nursery, and are on loan or for sale if anyone uh, likes one of them. Me wrong. No, anything can happen in the woods. We wanted our project to be about how we advance and push the boundaries of what architecture can ultimately be. What? <laughs> what? Plan B imagines the columns of Cummins corporate office building designed by Kevin Roche, who's a super rock star. Leafy pergola multiplying to form a kind of urban forest titled Anything Can Happen in the Woods. The new columns are mirrored in homage to Rush Dinklage aesthetic and to reflect their surroundings. Green hedges, busy street, post office. I was not convinced by this project when it was proposed because it just seemed kind of a little sloppy. And standing here with it now that it's been open to the public for a month, I feel even more so that that was correct. It's, it's looking a little, wet, a little worn, a little beat down. The grassy mounds are looking kind of dirt, not grass. The, Mirrored finish on the columns is not really mirroring. It's really just kind of shiny. I'm, I'm struggling with liking this one because Kevin Roche's uh, pergola is so perfect on its own. And I think if anything, this just, it, it just adds too much distraction to it. it. It messes up the sort of beautiful balance of the rigorous and the natural that the, that the, per, the pergola already had. It feels like a mess. It just feels like a mess. I'm sorry. It feels like a mess. I'm not going to apologize. First off, if there is any criticism of architects that is uniformly been stated is how we present Archibabble. <laughs> and their presentation of the project is says everything and it doesn't say actually it doesn't say anything. <laughs> it says nothing. <laughs> this has nothing to do with the the installation. I'm sure they're well-intentioned, but th as conceived, it is a absolute mess. I think I would have appreciated it more if the columns were at different heights and not all at the same height. That would help. And yeah. you would give some sense of a forest. That's an excellent yeah. formal critique. That would absolutely change it. If they were, yeah, absolutely. The, right now they're all at the same height and they have sound. Believe it or not, the, the diameter of these things each has a different sound. Yeah. And so where are the devices to help make the sound? There isn't anything. You have to use your hands to actually make a sound. Because I guess anything can happen. You're supposed to be experimenting with it, right? But I don't think most people, and we saw a dozen people here while we've been here, I don't think anyone else has banged on the columns like Ken did. We have very similar mounds in Minneapolis. You, they're beautiful, though. They're at the government, uh, at the, the federal, federal building. At the federal building. And oh they're very well, very well constructed. They're amazing. These are carbuncles. <laughs> Granted, the ones at the at the government at the federal building in Minneapolis have signs all over that say "Do not go on the grass." Yeah. So they look perfect. Yeah. And they make you want to lay down on them because yeah. the grass is so beautiful. These are now these like bald, muddy patches of of bump, 
that you don't want to sit on, even though they're shaped like a chair, because they look like you're just going to be sitting oh, in dirt. Dirt, yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, I guess I, little kids, little kids will play on them. Little they, kids will have fun in this place. Honestly, That's fine. I'll honestly, give them that. They look. I mean, they look like they were designed. I mean, because they how weird they are, but they don't look like they are connected to a, a unifying scheme. Right. And the trees, I had to be told that those were planted here because yeah. they just like they were always here. Yeah. Except for the fact that Phil kills and, and they filled... Phil <laughs> kills? Phil kills. Is that a... Yeah, landscape architects would not have you plant that far up a tree. To mound the dirt that far uh, up the up trunk because it kills them. It yes, kills it kills the them. Tree. If you but if it, don't expose the root ball, it kills yeah. them. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm assuming the root ball is not very far below that. I would imagine because yeah. they are temporary. So that may be the yeah. case. Yeah. They couldn't but, have dug a very big, big hole for it. Yeah. And I do know that the pavers they took up to put these mounds in, they are, they're stored. They will be okay. brought back and it'll be brought back Thankfully. to being the normal. Um, Roche I think the landscape visited. will forgive for what has happened here. <laughs> I think it will. The question is, can, will you? <laughs> I, I will not. I will not. Sorry. Not sorry. Next. Onto Euler Wu's The Exchange, which is arguably the most urban project highlighted by the traffic noise in the background. We were especially interested in not making a, a thing, but rather making a place. And in order to do that, it, it took us thinking about how to unify the three canopies into a single volume that had a range of ways of occupying it. Um, some that were, were relatively enclosed and felt relatively private, and others that were much more um, much more porous. Uh, we really loved the location that is a, a link between the, the this Cummins portion of the campus and the downtown. And we wanted something that was uh, both porous enough for you to be able to walk between the two without feeling like uh, you ever were enclosed, uh, unsafe, or confined. But it, it was just enough of a sense of enclosure that you really would want to stop and, and enjoy yourself. So what? Say it again? <laughs> that makes me love it even more. Because, yeah, as I just said to Ken before we started recording, I'm not completely sure I understand the point of the Euler Wu piece called The Exchange, but I said, if you're going to sit on a chair on a nice day, why not sit in a nice pavilion enclosure like this one rather than just under a tree? And then Dwayne says in that recording straight up, I wanted to make it feel more like a place. So here it is. We're in a place. We are definitely in a place. And it is so beautifully fabricated. That just gives me chills how beautifully made it is. <laughs> I really do rather enjoy this. I think it does well to respond to the immediate context of the, of the canopies. I'm curious um, as to how you're directed to, to look at the rest of the city and struggling with the, its relationship to the conference center itself. Well, it's a weird situation because for those who don't know, we're sitting under the, the canopies of what used to be the drive-through banking aisles. And those car aisles have been turned now into a pedestrian plaza. The, the building is no longer a bank, so what used to be a parking lot and drive aisles is now exposed aggregate concrete and brick paved plaza with some beautiful honey locust trees and little chairs and tables, sort of cafe tables to sit around. You're sitting in where the drive-through structures were. So these canopies overhead were originally the canopies for the drive-through. And what Euler Wu has done is connected the three separate canopies with this one linear 
nectar piece that blends so beautifully into the canopies that it's hard to tell where one starts and the other ends. And then maybe that's the, the, the part that I think, it, if there's any criticism, is what is the relationship of the forms? It's, the forms are very sexy and they're elegant and they're very... Where do the forms come from? Because it seems to me that a lot of the forms are taken from the curvature of the underside of the bench. I think Euler Wu has played with this rod structural technology in a lot of their projects. And Jenny Wu, of course, has a uh, jewelry company called Lace, where she's playing with lacy fabricated structures. So I think that is partly just their aesthetic. But I think maybe that's why I originally was not as convinced by it, because it was like, well, where do these curves come from? What do they mean? Sitting here in it on a beautiful day and looking at the honey locust trees and the whiteness of this structure, I feel like I don't really care where they came from. They're delightful. And you can find a logic to them. For example, the bench we're sitting on aligns perfectly with a solid piece of the canopy. So there's clearly some interaction and play back and forth between the existing and the new. But it's it's subtle enough and, and playful enough and quiet enough that it's it's not it's not an overarching contextual response. It doesn't overwhelm you, but it still makes a delightful space to sit in. And I did really like the Balnoges proposal that was in opposition to this one. It was a temporary paper structure using cast paper molded against the iconic furniture that has come out of the Saarinen and Eames and this this period. And it was, I thought, a very cool structure, but I actually do love this very much. So I'm happy. Great. Another Circle by Aranda Lash is the final Miller Prize installation Ken and Donna visit as the sun falls. All right, so we're having a little getting the app to work out here in another circle, maybe because the each app entry is GPS geolocated, and this is such a big project that it can't we it can't figure out where we are. <laughs> but that's funny because the to me the most the best part of this project, another circle by Randall Ash, is that um, their construction document consisted of a image on an iPhone that had every stone located with a with a GPS location, and that's all the contractor needed. There were no drawings. There were it was just. Here, go put stones at these locations. And that to me is the best, the best part of this project, was that drawing. Another circle by Aranda Lash responds to the strong natural and architectural elements present in Milrace Park, tying the round lake, the people trail, and the river together with a new three and a half acre stone circle composed of 1,100 salvaged Indiana limestone cutoffs. So within the circle, the stones are placed, stacked, or arrayed to create a theater and areas for discussion, games, and relaxation, a loose gathering of function inside a scattering of stones. So there's, they, and they said in their presentation, it wasn't about setting up like very specifically, here is an arena or here is a place to watch movies, but it was about setting stones in places that people could then create a use out of them as they experienced them and sat with them and visited the park with their friends. I think the notion with, of this circle was to be very social, so people would come with groups and, and sort of use the stones as they felt like when they I were mean, in the park. And it seems like they set up their spaces placed given the position of some of the stone slabs yeah. as though they're reclining areas. They're late reclining areas, definitely. Um, and there's a, I'm at a loss for what it's called, but I was at an art show in Minneapolis where they talked about how they were walking this one path and someone deliberately stacked mm-hmm. stones mm-hmm. 
in the pathway and they were purposely placed because it doesn't occur in nature yeah. and there's very much the same kind of attitude here yeah where you stack but the, the, what's different here than that what i heard them talk about and i have to look it up and remind myself what it's called this stacking occurred out of like you're just walking in this path and there's this unexpected stacking where right. here there is this very intentional you know that somebody did that here right but th because it is ubiquitous in, in, in many places in this site, it's less um, awe-inspiring. It mm -hmm. seems very mm -hmm. well constructed. It's very constructed, right. Yeah, this very is a, this well is conceived. A... Not a place where you come along a path and just break from this environment. This right. is very much loud and very well like placed. It is intentional. It's sort of skirting this line of trying to be loose collections, but if you were to see it in plan, again, if you were to experience this space in plan, it is inscribing a circle right next to another very intentional man-made circle of the, the Millrace Park Pond. I think standing here in the middle of it, it's hard to see it as a circle. So I, you know, I think if um, experiencing this project in plan is probably the most, in many ways, the most interesting reading of it. Although at the opening party, I did sit out here and I sat and reclined against one of the stones with a nice bourbon in my hand and it was lovely. And that's the other thing. If we were standing, Ken and I are standing right now, if we were to sit down, it'd be a different experience of this. It very much exists within this very flat, human-occupied space of the Midwest. And I, to me, in that way, it is Midwestern. It occupies this very short band of habitable space between ground and sky. So maybe we should lay down on the ground. And <laughs> you know, what's interesting about Stonehenge, right, is there's a mysticism in, in yeah. Stonehenge, right? Yeah. This one, there's nothing mystical about it. You have to read the text to know that these were geo-placed. It's like a there was a <laughs> an airplane flying overhead with Indiana. What's this? Indiana, what's the stone again? Indiana limestone. Indiana limestone that fell out of the sky and dropped into the <laughs> nice. earth. Nice. That's actually a nice idea. <laughs> but now, when you said Stonehenge, it just suddenly made me think of. Um, Spinal, this is Spinal Tap, yeah. the little Stonehenge that comes down on stage and they dance around it. Now I want to do a little sort of dancey jig of uh, ritual around it. <laughs> yeah, and the one criticism of the project that we heard, and, and I'm, I'm not sure if, if it dawned on them that this was relative to that experience, but uh, on uh, Jewish cemeteries, yeah. how this felt very much like even just even tipped over headstones in a cemetery. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you can see that. They do. They, you can well, see a little bit of a, like you said, a scattering from an airplane or a yeah. knocking over of something that was not supposed to be laying flat. You, and, can, you can maybe see that. And it's interesting, you know, the what we allow in art mm -hmm. for someone to bring their own experiences to that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think architects miss that, mm -hmm. and that's what happens. We come to these projects, we bring our own experiences, and we see things that maybe wasn't that weren't intended, but. We have to grapple with those situations and the way these stones stack mm -hmm. and you can know in Jewish cemeteries and you, mm -hmm. and like uh, Enrique reminded us last yeah. night yeah. at the end of Schindler's List when they're put stacking stones yeah. on the, uh, those who were murdered in concentration camps. So there is that feeling here. I think that, you know, it's interesting. I think a lot of what we could sum up about the professional pieces is a, is a collection of almosts. Mm -hmm. Almost perfect. Mm -hmm. like, 
there's something functionally limiting about not extending. I think that, you know, there's, like in the model, the presentation of the, of the wiki, beautiful model, yeah. almost, and then something, something fell flat. I'm pretty sure this project was initially intended, at least from the drawings, to extend into the pond, but yeah. something happen you know to me that sort of asks the, the what, what are our expectations of temporary installations for exhibits like exhibit columbus because when it comes to building we expect them to perform on a level that is high right they have to meet life safety stuff they also have to set our hearts afire yeah. you know what do we expect of exhibits and I, I continue to think that exhibits like exhibit columbus or even biennial whatever that those are good ways to have conversations about architecture. But what are we bringing a expectation of completeness to them when they are really experiments? Where when people experiment with actual buildings that people have to live their lives in, it's a lot easier to say, hey, don't experiment on my, my dime, right? right. <laughs> you know, I, I think... But I think uh, it was a competition. It was an actual competition. So it was an yes. actual competition. So I think when you're you're looking at competition submissions, there's an expectation that what is awarded should get built. Yes. Well, I guess the you know the jurors are professional architects and they, designers, and they know the difficulties and challenges of bringing something from conception to reality. Right. But then there's that mirror house that we saw that was in was it Detroit? We didn't see it. The Flint Flat Lot. The Flat. The Flint Flat Lot competition. Right. Yes. The model, the, the rendering was beautiful. Exquisite. It was exquisite. I that to be Absolutely. Built. The execution of that was horrific. Embarrassing. It was embarrassing. <laughs> so, I you know, we have to either temper our design ideas. Yeah. And, and our renderings. And our renderings <laughs> and say, this is what we can execute, but this yeah. is what's going to be in my portfolio. Yeah. This is what it will be. This is what it'll be in virtual reality. This is the ultimate what it'll be constructed reality. You know, as designers, I think I don't like flim flamming. I'm not like, sure what you mean by flim flamming. I don't like, <laughs> I don't like architectural con jobs. I don't either. <laughs> but I also respect I can, that it, it takes a lot more work to make something yeah. than to talk about something that somebody else made. Yeah. Also, I just want to point out... She just cut me down. I'm standing here at the Mill Race Pond, and it's evening, it's dusk, and the fish are just starting to come up and snap at the bugs that are near the surface, and they are creating other circles all over the circle surface of this circular pond. There are a number of small-scale installations around the city that Ken and Donna didn't get a chance to visit. Two of them, however, did merit note, so we'll finish this off with a look at those. First up is Indiana University's Synergia. IU does not have an architecture program. However, they are an important part of the design conversation in the city and the state. Similarly, North Christian Church is a distance outside the main core of architecture projects in the city, but is a very significant work of architecture by Aero Saarinen. The Exhibit Columbus organizers decided to put IU's project at this important though off-the-beaten-path location. The recording starts with students speaking on the app. Space planning, uh, renovating old buildings. And uh, this one is actually very new for me. And uh, it's not just an art piece. Uh, most people will say that it's just art, but it's not just art. It's just a way really 
need to consider a lot of things in this big project, like uh, what material do we need to use and uh, uh, how to show the best impact, and also it's uh, need a lot of labors and uh, cooperations and uh, to break a lot of questions, problem during this process. So I think uh, as a student in this project, I really learn a lot in this project. And uh, talking about, I think the most important thing in this project is to cooperate with a special way. And uh, so we also borrow this way to design our geometric pattern. So we, uh, our geometric pattern is it's with the same shape with the church, but it's combined by the different, so many different other geometric like uh, squares and triangles in it. So each unit is combined by other geometric and uh, geometric pattern. And uh, in the last part, our professor uh, inspired us that we could uh, use the concept that sales to combine to everyone's bodies and uh, each person to present as a different sale. So a sale combined part of this project was helping create the base. In doing so, we went to McCullough at IU University, and then we had the base of it laser cut with a ZNC cutter. Then we uh, got two by fours, and with the two by fours, we then cut those at specified, specified angles at which we were able to measure on a computer program, which we used to build the actual model called Rhino. From then, we assembled the base using four by fours to prop it off the ground to allow the lights to be underneath them and penetrate through the structure. Then the next part of my project was to form the seats and those were again ZNC cut at McCullough with um, the ZNC cutter. And those are put on and secured to the base entirely to allow people to enjoy their time inside. The name of the piece is Synergia and it is by the Indiana University School of Art, Architecture, and Design. They are not an architecture program. They have an a interiors program, but this is a really good little pavilion. It's uh, made out of coroplast. I think this is called coroplast, but the seats and the way they're fitted in is... I love it. I, I feel like, yeah, it feels like a kind of big chair. I like the project. I just wish that it was a little more, a little less opaque. Yeah, it's a little opaque. It is. I mean, it, it's... I think it's aspiring to the architecture, or at least trying to relate to the architecture of the church. It's a little heavy at the base, and I think it would benefit a little more from some larger openings. I think I just want to see more of the church and how this relates to the, right. to the church from a visual right. connection. Because you well, and maybe that's not unlike the church because you approach it and it looks like this very solid opaque object yeah. and then as you come around and see that there's an inside it starts to open up and feel much more engaging and lighter and yeah more like a space you can occupy which I think we just both Ken and I both had the same experience in the North Christian Church walking into it you walk in it feels very heavy very geometric very dark and abstract and heavy and then you come inside and it opens out into the sanctuary space I mean, there is a bit of a connection of experiential quality there. Yeah, I think for me, what's difficult about this particular pavilion is that the, at the inside the church, the the light from the top really mm -hmm. kind of hits the the altar. Mm -hmm. But then you're still having, uh, which is 
interesting from uh, the light coming from up uh, from right. below from below and upward kind of yes. yeah. kind of light and lighting the edges of the space right which I think that's maybe just a little bit of a miss here is that it's there is it's so opaque at the base and around yeah. the edges yeah. that it doesn't have it is. that way of directing the light upward because it's much more successful looking up into yeah. it and seeing oh, yeah. the, the translucency of the panels. yeah but it's still a, a lovely exercise and a it much is. more sophisticated fabrication yeah. Than, yeah. than many of the other ones yes definitely so, very sophisticated fabrication. kudos kudos <laughs> <laughs> it's a good project better than plan b i think it's better than i would say better than plan b <laughs> And finally, we take a look at a project by local public high school students entitled Between the Threads. The recording starts with the app and is followed with the students speaking about the installation. Fun in the colors. Huh? Is it fun? Yeah. Good. What was your favorite color? Well, you're wearing it. Turquoise. And pink. Look at you are dressed for this occasion. <laughs> it's so pretty. <laughs> well, I'm sure the high school kids who made this are going to be thrilled yes. that you liked it. This is a fun one. That's they like the maze part. They make the maze part. It's amazing. Goodbye. Freshman at the University of Illinois studying architecture. And for as long as I can remember, I've wanted to be an architect. Growing up in Columbus, it's probably not much of a surprise. But this project was an amazing opportunity to learn more about the architecture of Columbus and to add my own touch to it, to sort of be a chapter in the story of what Columbus is. And when I started this about a year ago, I had no idea what I was getting into. I didn't know that I would meet five other people and get to know them in ways I had never expected to. I didn't know I would learn to weld or that I would spend hours and hours wrapping 56 miles of Rex lace around these frames. And I didn't realize what impact I could have on my community. And I'm so proud to be a part of it. Wow. That's nice. I mean, she says it all. So we're at the, the Columbus High School Students Project, and it is, I've seen pictures of it, I've heard people talk about it, it is exceeding every expectation I had. It's beautiful, and so simple, and colorful, and just delightful in every way. Yeah, it really is a, a wonderful sound, and visual, color, everything about it. You know, after you're done with Plan B, you might as well take a trip to Plan A and see these high school kids, and, and their work is amazing. I mean, you know, it's so simple. It's, it's simple phenomenology, right? It's just put yeah, these objects really, together, and the between the wind and your hands and the sound, I don't know if we can get record the sound of the actual um, fibers. It's subtle, but it's definitely there, and it just glows. The whole thing glows. And there's a movement that is uh -huh. uh, arresting. Yeah, and I, I really like to be here on a, wind, a very windy day to see yeah. what this sounds like. Because just walking through it, it you're very... Yeah, and it's not yeah. very breezy, yeah. and you're still... They're vibrating. Vibra like yeah, vibrate. Yeah, it vibrates. This space vibrates. Oh. And it's a well-worn path, not lumpy clods of sod. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's a nice contrast to the very hard edge of this building. So. Yeah. 
wonderful, it's it's a wonderful, wonderful piece project. of architecture. Fantastic. And that concludes the tour of Exhibit Columbus. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Ken and Donna for taking us on a tour of the exhibit. If you have any questions about the podcast or comments or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thanks, and we'll talk to you next time.